0: I think the most startling thing in a way was the fact that this university in China that I wrote about in Beijing that is well known within the State Department to be overseen and partly funded by China's intelligence service is actually, you know, entering into partnerships with Western universities, including, you know, a couple in the United States.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined on the phone by Dan Golden. Dan is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and senior editor at ProPublica. He is the author of the national bestseller, The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way Into Elite Colleges, and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates. His new book, out just this week, is Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities. And joining me in the studio are John Seifer and FP's Jenna McLaughlin. John is a Director of Client Services at Crosslead Inc. He retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA Senior Intelligence Service. He is a recipient of the agency's Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. Jenna is an intelligence reporter here at FP, focusing on the culture, dynamics, and events happening in the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the other 15 members of the intelligence community, plus the way sensitive information they gather and analyze informs and directs the White House and policymakers on the Hill. ER fans, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So, Dan, I wanted to start off talking about your book, But also some recent events, we were talking about doing a review of your book, even when it first showed up in the office. And then with the recent um, incident where Chelsea Manning, who had sort of an honorary fellowship at Harvard, um, saw that withdrawn after Mike Pompeo at the last minute canceled a lecture there. And there was some other pushback as well from former CIA officials. And it really got me thinking about these links that you write about extensively in your book. Um, between universities and the intelligence community and also um, intelligence agents abroad, so just to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your book and its theme, and also how much that what happened with Chelsea Manning at Harvard and the controversy over that relates to what you wrote about
0: Sure, and thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, the theme of my book is that there's kind of universities have kind of become a frontline for both domestic and foreign intelligence activity. I mean, this is partly because there's been this enormous influx of foreign students and, and visiting scholars and professors and so on at American universities, you know, some of whom are, are here to gather information or or, or steal research. And... At the same time, there's a lot of American uh, agents from the CIA and FBI going to universities, sometimes undercover, to recruit some of those foreign students and professors and and send them home as agents. So I'm kind of looking at this spy versus spy on college campuses. And part of it is also on the the domestic side that American universities have become, you know, more reluctant to resist uh, domestic intelligence agencies' kind of incursions since 9-11, and so on. And the Kennedy School action is kind of an example of that. I mean, they, they uh, rescinded their invitation to Chelsea Manning. And, uh, I mean, you've got to think it's because they have very close ties with the CIA that they don't want to imperil. And in my book, I document what's never been reported before, that in the Kennedy School's mid-career program in particular, where there's a lot of uh, foreign uh, uh, business people, politicians, military people enrolled... Um, there's also been over uh, you know in recent decades uh, stretching back as far as the 70s and 80s there's been uh CIA officers enrolled undercover in these uh uh in this in this program and they they're told not to re- recruit but uh certainly there's there's no barrier on them becoming friendly with these foreign cl- classmates and they the cover they use the same one they usually use overseas say as a state department diplomat and so uh, the foreign, you know, students may not necessarily recognize that the uh, uh, these are CIA officers, and it gives them, you know, sources they can later use. So that's sort of just one example of the many kind of close web of association between the Kennedy School and the CIA, which probably led the CIA to protest the invitation of Manning kind of on the grounds, hey, this is betraying our alliance. And ultimately, I think, resulted in pressure on the Kennedy School to, to revoke the invitation.
1: John, I think you had something you want to mention there. And let's just give the background of Chelsea Manning is the former Army intelligence analyst who provided tens of thousands of classified cable, State Department cables and Pentagon documents over to WikiLeaks that were then published as part of what they called CableGate. And, you know, the the fellowship she had was an honorary one, um, but there were certainly people who felt that it was, you know, that, that her actions Sort of imperiled the standing of that it was not deserving of sort of Harvard's fellowship. John, did you want to? You had something you wanted to say on that. Yeah,
2: Daniel, thanks for that. Uh, I just wanted to comment a little bit on the, the Harvard issue. In some ways, I don't find that that surprising. Just like every other agency and Defense Department and others, senior executives often go to get master's degrees or continue education. And the fact that some CIA officers in the Clandestine Service who are undercover do that as well, they have to maintain their cover when they uh, join these uh, programs because then they can't go back overseas and work in the, the place where they were before. And in those cases, oftentimes uh, that officer will deal with the senior people in the administration to let them know that, hey, just want you to know that I am a CIA officer, but I need to maintain my cover so that I can continue my career. And uh, places like Harvard and others are supportive of that. But as you mentioned, there are strong rules about it not being used to recruit people there you're right to say that developing personal relationships are something that, you know, could be taken advantage of later. But the purpose of those programs is to give people, you know, uh, executive education, just like in, in all of our departments in government.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, I would point out in my, I, uh, in my book, I, I note that Princeton, which has a similar mid-career program, doesn't al- allow uh, undercover officers. And you know, the issue is is uh, is, is kind of the uh, integrity and the transparency of the educational experience. You know, in, in a mid-career program, the idea is for the students to be able to share their experiences candidly, and for people from you know different countries to get get to know each other. And so, if you've got a few students in the in the class who can't be candid about their experience, and their classmates and their professors don't know where they really work. It can be awkward, you know, and it also just sort of more generally says something about you know the independence of academia you know do you see it as kind of an arm of government or do you see it as kind of a separate uh, institution I mean partly it reflects kind of the broader issue of globalization versus kind of nationalism, which we 've seen with you know, brexit and, and also and, and the Trump campaign and all sorts of other things, which is you know the intelligence agencies are obviously instruments of particular governments, and in in a program like Harvard, there's not just you know CIA uh, officers who are undercover. There's probably some foreign officers too, all all seeking their particular government's agendas. And at the same time, academia is kind of the ultimate global institution, right? They they want to. Uh, sort of maintain their sort of credibility internationally they want to partner with other places they want to bring in the best minds regardless of what country they're from so what i see in is kind of you know the kind of uh, globalization and nationalism, kind of a case study of how they're you know running into each other in these universities.
1: Well, let me ask a question, Dan. So, the, one of the things that you talk about in your book is how much things change. I mean, there was the Vietnam War period where there was this real break between academia and the military and intelligence community, um, which started to repair itself. And then you talk about how after nine eleven, there was really this sort of sense of patriotism, which drew them back closer together again. So something like this. The Chelsea Manning revoking an honorary fellowship under pressure from the CIA. Do you think that would have happened? I mean, I realize you wouldn't have the same event, but would something similar have happened 20 years ago?
0: Well, it's hard to put an exact year on it, but I think that it would have been less likely to happen back certainly in the era when I was growing up in the sort of Vietnam and, and Watergate era. You know, I mean, there wouldn't have been as many ties with the intelligence community that would have been then jeopardized by an invitation like that. And there would have been, you would have seen more resistance. And if a place like Harvard had rescinded the invitation back then, I think there would have been more protest and upheaval about it on campus. I mean, you know, Harvard is interesting because in the 70s, they were the place that uh, imposed very, you know, strict guidelines about domestic intelligence activity on campus. Uh, As I kind of go through, you know, they, they basically said we've got a problem here with intelligence agencies undercover recruiting of foreign students, and they put in rules against it. And uh, they also put in rules against professors acting as intelligence officers. And uh, but they, no other, you know, not many other universities followed their lead for various reasons. And so there are not strong policies in place, kind of nationally. And now, in more recent years, Harvard and other schools, as I say, have. They, they've become more dependent on probably funding from the military and the intelligence community. There's there's more classified research going on at universities, and so they've got financial reasons, and they've got you know patriotism type reasons, and shifting public mood reasons, all of which lead them to be afraid to kind of you know buck the government.
1: Well let's talk about a specific episode in your book. And I have to admit, I when I started off with the book, it wasn't what I expected. I expected it to be mostly about sort of U.S. intelligence infiltration of U.S. universities. And a lot of the book is about foreign intelligence um, uh, involvement in universities. And you have the story um, from Duke University about metamaterials. I've come at this mostly from the attitude of professors complaining to me in the past about restrictions on them through the international traffic and arms regulations that they aren't able to work with Iranian graduate students or Chinese graduate students but you really illustrate a case where it looks like from the way you describe it a Chinese graduate student was able to manipulate the situation to take a lot of research back to China can you tell us a little bit about that chapter
0: yeah i'd be glad to and you know you're right my i try to deal with both approaches so half the book is about foreign intelligence at uh American universities and, and academic conferences and the other, second half is about domestic intelligence. So, you know, I have a nice uh, blurb from John le Carré on it calling it uh, timely and shocking and I'd li- I I think maybe that's because that was his perspective in his novels that made them so compelling, you know, both the English intelligence and the KGB were kind of manipulative and and so that's what I'm trying to kind of show in my look at the American universities only only from real life and this case involved a graduate student from China who was working on research at Duke under a renowned professor on metamaterials and invisibility, essentially trying to build an invisibility cloak. And they succeeded in building a cloak that was invisible to some waves, though not to the human eye, and wasn't restricted research, so it wouldn't come under ITAR, but yet it was quite sensitive, and it was funded by the military. And he kind of exploited the the lack of kind of guidelines on on what you can do so that in in terms of sharing information so he brought in some collaborators from china who then sent over people took pictures of the equipment he provided you know a lot of the research that duke was doing that the various other people in the lab thought they were kind of keeping themselves he shared with the collaborators he took the research and he he, without telling Duke, he, uh, he, he put it on a website on a Chinese server where he was preparing uh, to start a new uh, business. He deceived the professor into coming to signing an agreement to go to China and tell them all about his research. So he took a number of steps that look very much either like sort of economic espionage on his own or Chinese government abetted espionage. And when he went back to China, you know, the, the, Duke rea- the professor reacted in time to kind of block him from getting a job at another American university, but Duke gave him a doctorate, and he went back to China, and with, you know, financial help from the government, he started basically a competing institute and company working on the same general field and uh, became a billionaire
1: and let's just caveat this that the professor at duke smith is not a billionaire correct
0: no he's no no kind of billionaire i mean i i, I mean he's some you know i'm sure he's about like other professors you know and but uh, so far far wealthier you know is the student who poached the research than the professor under you know who was the originator, and also the guy is quite prominent in China in terms of advising the government on science matters. And you know, he's met the, the president of China. I mean, he's sort
1: of the. I think you compared him to Richard Branson, right? He's sort of the Chinese Richard, or, or Elon Musk, I think, was the more. Yeah, Elon
0: Musk. Yes, exactly. And uh, so, uh, I mean, it's quite a cautionary tale. And I mean, people have talked in general about you know China's appropriation of American intellectual property, but this kind of mostly that's in the business realm. and this kind of is a fresh case that nobody knows about, uh, though the FBI looked at it, so I mean, I, uh, internally they know about it, but it's never been in, in the public eye, you know, and it shows that, that this is an issue at universities as well, and I think the more general rules are there was kind of a lack of intellectual property safeguards, there was a naivete, again, from the sort of global the globalism perspective, you know, international partnerships are great, and I personally think they are great, but there has to be some sophistication and some awareness of of the possible side effects and some agreements spelling out what you can do and what you can't do, And, and that was missing in this case.
1: Well, I want to get to Jenna in a second, but I have one specific question on that chapter. Um, you know, why you, – you talk later in the book about you meet um, – I think it's John Reese Roth, the, the former University of Tennessee professor who ended up going to prison for sharing information with a Chinese graduate student um, on plasma actuators. Why did Roth end up going to prison for, in some ways, doing the same thing? What was the difference between the research? Why – I mean, it, the FBI looked at the Duke University case but didn't end up doing it anything. And in the second case with Roth, he actually went to prison. Um, Was it the the level of the research? Because both had DOD funding. And I I was curious about that coming out of the book.
0: Yeah. Well, my memory is on the Roth case, that was export controlled research. So if it's export controlled, that means you're not allowed to uh, have graduate students from countries that kind of aren't on the approved list participate in the research. And that's what he did did wrong. I mean, he he had, uh, you know, Chinese grad students working on the research, uh, maybe another country, too. I can't remember the other country. I think
1: it was country. India, if I remember. I, I cover this case way back in the day.
0: Yeah, so there he was violating the rules. This was not export-controlled, uh, but it was uh, military-funded. And as I, I mentioned in there, when the, the military, the U.S. military got wind of it because, the you know, the one of the groundbreaking articles they published in... Uh, science magazine when it listed the funding it listed like you know the chinese government the chinese science foundation as funders and the u.s military said wait a minute you're doing research that you know we want to use someday to cloak our you know war planes and war material so it's invisible why is china sharing in this they're a potential enemy so uh... i think but it's not you know what he did because of the sort of lack of ground rules and lack of general uh you know, uh, restrictions, uh, I don't think they could find uh, a a charge to put it under. You know, and basically what they did was, uh, as I say, you know, Smith kept him from getting another job, and uh, Duke took, took away his key to the lab. But, you know, Duke did let him, they did give him a doctorate, even though there were these suspicions floating around, which... You know, you might, if you were conspiratorial, say, is this connected to the fact that around that time Duke was negotiating with China to set up a campus there? Universities have a lot of, you know, financial stake in uh, these foreign connections. You know, they, uh, uh, they, they they get a lot of money from foreign students who pay full tuition, and they, they like to set up branches overseas, and a lot of those are subsidized by the foreign country, so they're not... Um, not a big investment for the university, but it it promises a big return. So those are some of the factors, I'd say, surrounding it and differentiating it from the Roth case.
1: One of the things I enjoyed about the book is, you know, I I thought I knew this area fairly well, but you have so many stories in there that either I was only sort of, you know, superficially aware of or hadn't heard of. So I'm curious, which of the stories, because it's a number of stories within the universities, What, what most captured your intention as an intelligence reporter?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I could probably talk about a few different examples. I really enjoyed the book um, and I wrote a brief review about it that'll come out in foreign policy in a week or two, I think. Um, Probably one of the first ones that I thought was really interesting in terms of the American intelligence side is all these fake academic conferences that the CIA helps plan around the world. And it's at one point not surprising, but it's also very fascinating kind of The people that they bring to these conferences, I mean, you think about especially the chapters about um, the Iranian nuclear scientists that are brought to these conferences. And it's kind of the only way that they can get out of their handlers eye is to be at these conferences and kind of presenting some of their research. And, you know, they're in their hotel rooms at night for a couple hours to sleep. And here comes the CIA saying, you know here's the ice bucket in case someone comes. You can say that that you were getting ice, but uh, we think you should get on this U.S. plane with us right now. Um, and I just found that incredibly interesting. I'm um, glad
0: you did. Yeah, that ice bucket line is actually one of my favorite lines. Yeah, I, I mean,
3: <laughs> I am the writer's reporter. I love details like that. <laughs> but um, also, I, I think that on the U.S. side, some of these students that come to, you know, these little schools in the middle of the country, and there's these connections to Chinese intelligence, you know, things like that are something that you wouldn't think about. you Students out among the cornfields kind of thing, you think that that's kind of middle America, that there's not much going on there. But then you've got these students that are connected to Chinese military. And I, I found it interesting that especially some of these schools that are connected to intelligence services overseas, um, not all of the students end up going down that route. it's It's not a pre-prescribed sort of thing. Sometimes they come to the U.S. and they say, you know, actually, I'm going to do this other thing that I'm interested in, um, while others follow kind of the plan that was laid out for them. Um, so I, I felt like that interwoven f- factor of that was really fascinating and not something you think about especially as a college student you know you're sitting in class you're not thinking about your friend who's Iranian who's doing research over there and you, you're not thinking about how maybe she's had conversations with people that work in intelligence um, until you kind of think and say hey actually that that kind of makes sense um, but it's not something that is on the forefront of my mind. Well,
1: John, as someone who spent their career involved in the intelligence community, I mean, the, the book really, it's what, one of the things that impressed me. It's very even handed in how it analyzes rather than just, you know, condemning the role of the intelligence community in universities. But there is this underlying theme of questioning what is the proper ro- role, whether it's FBI or CIA at universities. From your standpoint, should there be restrictions or what is the role of, of the intelligence community and their relationship with universities and academia?
2: Well, I think Daniel's right in the the sense that uh, foreign countries and foreign intelligence services have picked up on, you know, we have the best education system in the world and also many ties oftentimes to the defense uh, complex. So they send people over here. So the FBI is going to have a natural interest as the head of our counterintelligence, counterespionage community of being involved in trying to figure out what they're doing. The CIA has a much smaller role, which indeed is to try to find people who may be going back to those kind of closed programs that you mentioned, whether it be Iran or China or, or what have you. Um, but, but the rules are very different for the two of them. The FBI have a much wider uh, amount of things that they can do to either contact professors, contact students, go onto campus. The CIA has a very st- strict sort of legal guidelines about, about what can be done. It has, obviously has a much smaller footprint in the United States, often working with the FBI in this case.
1: Well, Dan, from your perspective, one of the things you talk about early in the book, or I think in the, um, in the prologue, is how you know, the FBI sort of challenged whether there was a story here, I mean, sort of the underlying premise of the book. Can you talk how did you decide to write this book? And then what was the initial reaction um, from the FBI and CIA when they learned that you were writing it?
0: Well, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I had a lot of luck with the reporting, and uh, it basically originated with a story that I was working on for uh, Bloomberg News, where I was working at the time about a professor at the uh, University of South Florida who um, was born in China, and his his name was Dajin Pong, and for various reasons the FBI was keeping an eye on him. He was running something called a Confucius Institute, which is a China-funded institute on U.S. soil. There was one at South Florida. It's like 100 in the U.S. And... um, that the FBI suspected of being, you know, kind of a haven for spies, and so they suspected this professor at South Florida, and then he got into trouble for uh, sort of financial irregularities, expense accounts, finagling, things like that. And basically, the FBI went to him, and they, you know, kind of the way they might say to a mobster or something, they said to him, you know, well, you have two choices, you know, you can lose your professorship and go to prison for your financial fraud or you can keep your professorship and spy on the Confucius Institutes in China for us. And so I did that piece for Bloomberg, and then, uh, you know, as I was doing that piece and I was talking to people, they I'd say, well, is this unusual? And I'd expect them to say, oh, I never heard of anything like this. But people in the intelligence field started saying to me, well, you know, this isn't the worst thing we've ever seen, or th- this is pretty typical, or, or, you know, there's a lot of uh, events like this, and I'm like, whoa. You know, the FBI, of course, was not uh, eager. They, they were not very cooperative with that piece. And then one of the techniques I'd used uh, in, the, in that reporting that story was I had used a public information request, you know, what we would say FOIA the University of South Florida, which is a public school, for all of, for communications with the FBI. And I'd gotten these great emails from the university to the uh, uh, from the FBI agent who was recruiting the professor to the university and back, and uh, they were very they were fascinating. I mean, there's one in which the FBI even asked the university to open a a, a branch campus in China that the professor could use as a base for his spying. So I mean, the emails were fantastic. (laughs) So when I decided to work on the book, I decided to use the same technique with a dozen other, 15 other public universities around the country. And so I sent public records requests to all of them for their correspondence with the FBI and the CIA. and. I think this was a pretty innovative technique. Most people, if they want FBI communications, they, they FOIA the FBI for them. But my thinking was, I'll never get anything out of the FBI or the CIA. But the universities, with kind of their tradition of you know transparency or semi-transparency, would probably cooperate. And some of them did. And what ended up happening was, with one of them, the New Jersey Institute of Technology, which I chose because it has a very high foreign population and. Uh, uh, you know, it's an engineering school, and because it's not that prominent that it would get a lot of public records requests. So I, I picked them, and they initially said, oh, yeah, we have 4,000 pages of communications with the FBI for you. And I said, great. And then when I got the 4,000 pages, there was like, they only really sent me 400, and like 350 were completely blacked out. So there was very little there, and I, so... Um, I hired the Porter's Committee for Freedom of the Press in Washington, you know, to represent me to kind of sue them or send them a letter to figure out what was going on, and their basic response was, we were going to give you these pages, and it later turned out to be 6,000 pages, but the FBI told us not to, and they said in court documents that they had sent, that the FBI had sent eight agents to campus to go through all the pages and figure out what they could show me and what they couldn't show me. So. Uh, suffice it that ended up ultimately in federal court, and it settled with the FBI handing over most of the documents. But you know, the FBI maintains the legal position that any email they send or any communication they send still belongs to them, not the recipient, which is kind of a bizarre position. I mean, if you send and you know, I send you an email, it's now yours. But so they took that position, and I think they settled to avoid having it, you know, like legal rejected precedent. legally, yeah, a legal precedent. And, you know, I got most of the stuff, but some of the other public universities ignored the FBI's request not to send me anything. And so I got some good stuff. And that's how I found the Duke case, because it was referenced in an agenda that somebody had sent me of a group called the National Security Higher Education Advisory Board. It, it said something in there like a, a Duke professor will talk about how a graduate student from China stole his research and started a competing institute there. And I was like, Whoa! You know that's pretty interesting. And eventually, I figured out who the various players were.
1: And that was the Duke case, right? That, that was the Duke case. Okay. Yes,
0: that's how I found the one about the you know the student and the invisibility research. So that was uh, you know so those kind of public records were very helpful. But obviously, so the FBI was they were not happy at all about. You know my book. I mean, the CIA. You know, I, I dealt with them occasionally. You know, they were uh, polite uh, and it, they set up a, a couple interviews for me. But I didn't get any great degree of cooperation there. But I also didn't get any great degree of hostility. You know, they they seemed to take it more in stride, like, oh yeah, people write books about the, you know, the CIA. This is no big deal. But the FBI, maybe because they were the focus in that Florida story that I wrote about initially, the FBI seemed to, uh, you know, get quite upset.
1: Well, let me ask you a devil's advocate question about the Duke University Metamaterials case. So because I I interviewed a lot of professors back in the day about the industrial espionage cases that were prosecuted, and also about professors after the Roth case at University of Tennessee who were deathly afraid of getting in trouble and going to prison for cooperation or having graduate students run in China, because there's a lot of ambiguity over what is controlled under munitions and export control. So here's, here's the devil's advocate question. Um, you know, I think from the standpoint of this graduate student, you know, he was involved in basic unclassified research. He got his doctorate. He did cooperation with China. He didn't break any laws. And actually, it was only – if I if I remember the history of how you chronicle this, you know, Smith, the professor at Duke, only got really incensed after I think his funder – I think it was the Air Force um, – expressed concerns about the cooperation and the funding from China. So this graduate student, this Chinese graduate student, he was not – not able to get the job. I think he applied at MIT in another place. So couldn't one say that it was actually our own undoing? that? You know, if, if his career path in the States hadn't been blocked, maybe he would have pursued a career here. Maybe his billion-dollar company would have been in the United States. But it was, in fact, the concerns about his relations with China that led him to go back. I'm not saying I agree with this, but how would you respond to that, you know, sort of question?
0: Well, I mean, you know, that's essentially the defense he made when we interviewed him in China. And I think that, uh, you know, the response is kind of in the details. I mean, obviously there's a lot of wiggle room and a lot of ambiguity, but, you know, if you read that chapter and read what some of the other graduate students in the lab said, not just the professor, what this guy did was clearly beyond the pale of academic norm.
1: Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he was clearly violating some... Ac-
0: I mean, there, if you recall, there was a, at least one, stu- one member of the lab who wouldn't speak to him or share any research with him because when he shared it with him he found that it was then being presented by chinese researchers as their own and while it is um, it wasn't uh, classified or export controlled research there is a benefit to getting that early and getting it to somebody else you know who can maybe publish it first and get all the attention and acclaim and funding that goes with that and it also kind of shows you if you're in the middle there you know more than just what's published. You know what, what, are the, what to avoid, you know, what are the research uh, dead ends. And so it's quite valuable to have somebody in there. And so, I mean, I think that would be my answer. You know, there were concrete benefits here that were acquired through routes that are not, um, you know, just are not standard academic collaboration.
1: Right. I'm um, going back to this, the evolution of the relationship between the intelligence community and university. I, I remember growing up in um, Iowa back in the day where University of Iowa was, and this is in the 1980s, and the students would protest when the CIA came to recruit on campus. I, I don't think that happens as much anymore. John. I mean, I'm not sure how much involvement you've had, but what is your general impression of how the CIA is viewed on university campuses these days as opposed to perhaps when you were starting your career?
2: Yeah, interestingly. So I remember when I was at graduate school at- Columbia, when the CIA recruiter came, I, I went to listen and, yeah, there was protesters at the at the meeting <laughs> in the small room yelling about things. I, I do think it is different now, I think, since nine eleven, and we see it with the military too, a much more sort of, it's more considered patriotic to support the military, to support the intelligence services. But still, I think there's, you know, people take care not to sort of overly promote these events. But, and you see the CIA actually advertises in, in magazines and newspapers and, and has a website and those type of things. So it is a little bit of a different world than it used to be, for sure.
1: Well, Jenna, you are by far the one in this conversation closest to university days. And, you know, we both went to Johns Hopkins for college. <laughs> yep. um, and I remember Hopkins at the time I went there was a bit different. It was always more conservative than, you know, University of Iowa, the where I grew up. Um, did the CIA come to recruit? Did people go? What was your impression on campus?
3: Um, As far as I can remember, I don't think that there was any real hostility towards CIA recruitment Um, from the people that I knew. More of them were interested in sort of becoming a doctor, and I had all the crazy writer people surrounding me all the time. But I mean, Hopkins especially feeds right into SICE, which is the Advanced International Studies uh, Institute. Which, in, is Daniel notes in, in the book, is also a hotbed of spots. Exactly.
0: So, while I was there, reading, yeah.
3: I was thinking, you know, Hopkins features prominently in this book, and I'm not that surprised about it. I mean, the school gets a lot of money for research, it has a lot of various connections, especially at scientific research. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised that they're right. So to, also, you've come at this as someone has reported on
1: higher education in the past um, and not as much national security. So of the stories that you, I mean, what did you find absolutely most surprising coming out of your research?
0: Well, I mean, you know, from from the Florida story on, I was just kind of like I say, I was amazed when people said that this is a, this is standard practice because, you know, I grew up. My, my parents were professors at UMass, and I grew up in the era when, as you've mentioned, you know, there were there were demonstrations against recruiters, and it was kind of a, you know, a, a, anathema to have the CIA and to some extent the FBI on campus too, and uh, so it just astonished me as to how much things had changed and then i think the most startling thing in a way which we alluded to earlier was the was the fact that this university in in china that i wrote about in beijing that is well known within the state department to be overseen and partly funded by china's intelligence service is actually you know entering into partnerships with western universities including you know a couple in the united states and you know exchanging faculty and administrators uh, i mean that that kind of boggled my mind i mean and i you know, and I visited, you know, one of the partnerships with Marietta College in Ohio. And, I mean, I visited Marietta and I talked to people and I was just amazed by the kind of, you know, way that the, the college had just decided to ignore all this, you know, because they needed this university in China to help them get Chinese students to pay full tuition to keep the place aflo- afloat. And so they had really made a kind of Faustian bargain. And I remember I talked to one, you know, former... Top administrator at Marietta, and she just said, "You know, when you think back on it, it's really indefensible." And and so, uh, I think that was that stood out as something, uh, you know, very startling to me—the way that, you know, some of our colleges were being manipulated into these into these partnerships, and uh, you know, so I'd, I'd say that was among the most startling things. And then, the other one you haven't mentioned that I found startling is the story at CICE about the uh, the two uh, Puerto Rican women who were uh, close friends and how, you know, one was uh, spying for Cuba and recruited the other at, at Sice and you know, that's quite as. and I, I was able to track, you know, one of them's well-known the one who was recruited, Annabelle Montes, was, was well-known and was, you know, sentenced to 25 years in prison went, uh, you know, she she became a top Cuba analyst at the DIA but the other uh, Maria uh, Marta Velasquez uh, not much has been written about, and I was able to kind of track her down to Sweden where she's teaching public high school and you know she's under indictment here, but there's no extradition and uh, you know so that that was uh, that was a pretty amazing story to me too and it opened up a whole new world for me because i didn't really you know her father was a prominent judge and law professor in puerto Rico and and I didn't really realize that that Puerto Rico and Cuba had this kind of affinity and and you know so that was a whole new world to me just in terms of uh, you know, an area of the world I don't know much about.
1: You come away towards the end of the book, and you write, as Americans and foreign agents converge on campus, university administrators avert their gazes, making no complaints and taking no precautions. They don't want to appear unpatriotic or alienate research funders by pushing back against U.S. intelligence. Um, but you don't. What What do you think coming out of this um, should be the proper relationship between academia and the intelligence community?
0: Well, my feeling is I don't have uh, much of a problem with the kind of overt recruiting that we've discussed. I mean, I think that, you know, if the CIA advertises itself under the CIA or the FBI does so as the FBI and and wants to recruit college students and they want to work for them, that's fine. But I think that, you know, the undercover activity, the recruiting of foreign students and and professors, sometimes under false pretenses or with pressure, like in the Florida case, is... uh, Inappropriate and does kind of encroach on, you know, academic independence and, and credibility. And so, you know, it's I mean, in terms of solutions, I mean, I would like to see universities take a bit more uh, forceful position on it. You know, they that maybe. Um, you know, expelling people who they find to be, uh, you know, when they suspect of espionage, or not handing out degrees to to suspected spies, or, you know, pushing back against the CIA or FBI and some of these undercover activities, as as South Florida finally did, you know, at the end of my my tale about them. I mean, I kind of, I introduced this phrase in my conclusion called no spy zone, but I do think, you know, it would be nice if, uh, I mean, I think universities are very valuable institutions, and what they do is kind of you know, advance the world forward through learning and research and education and, and global connections. And so, you know, I think it would be better if they weren't tarnished in this way. And if, you know, I mean, the, the dreamer in me would say if there could possibly be some kind of international treaty declaring them off limits or setting some kind of restrictions or guidelines, I mean, that would be a great thing, in my opinion.
1: And what about on the flip side, on the on the foreign students who are either Um, taking proprietary technology or possibly export-controlled technology or just technology that would be useful in the United States um, or those who are coming as agents of their intelligence agencies, what is the answer? Is there an answer there?
0: Well, I mean, I think certainly universities could make progress there by having stricter rules on collaborations, by having more courses on intellectual property and kind of letting people know what, what the rules are and what can be done and what can't be done and keeping an eye on on things that way. And as I say, I support sort of the global view, and I, I don't want fewer foreign students to come. So I think the answer is, you know, or the approach lies in better awareness, better rules, more vigilance. Great.
1: Um, Dan, thanks so much. John, thanks for joining us. And Jenna, you too. Again, we've been talking about Dan Golden's new book, Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities, which is out this week. And again, ER fans, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.